We didn't do what is this? What is this? You're listening to Behind the Lens, and Brian this week now faked me out. Here I thought we were going to have an appropriate intro. Yes, Brian, give us an appropriate intro for this special week. Mr. Cha Cha Pinks, you are listening to Behind the Lens. And yes, you are, and everyone out there knows why Jar Jar is more important than ever introducing this week's show. I was just worried that we were still in shuffle. Oh, That's well, the only reason why I didn't play it. Well, yes, we had that issue last week with things just shuffling. But we're out of shuffle. We're out of shuffle. Anyway, I'm Debbie Elias. Welcome to Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line. Every Monday live here on AdrenalineRadio.com and AdviceRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And then afterwards, you can find us, uh, the show gets uploaded onto my website sometime in the late afternoon, com. Every Tuesday, the show is available on iTunes. And sometime Monday night, Brian has it up on the Adrenaline Radio Archive, so you can find us anytime. And today's show is one show that you are definitely going to want to listen to. You know, and I thought we had a really interesting, fascinating show a couple weeks ago. When we had the wonderful Malcolm Carter, humanitarian filmmaker Malcolm Carter, talking the connected universe, I think I think we may be topping the intelligence level today. What do you think, Brian? Well, if it's concerning the people in this room, the intelligence level does not need to be too high in order for it to be topped. But yes, today's show does look like it's going to be one of those riveting interviews, like the way the one that you mentioned with Malcolm Carter. Yeah. But to, because today. I am absolutely privileged that joining us uh, about the quarter hour mark is going to be director Sheldon Raynan. He's also uh, a, an author, the author of the book, An Introduction to the American Underground Film. But he is the director of The Killing of America, a 1981 documentary many consider it to be part of the quote-unquote Mondo film movement. Um, it was done in 1981. It was shelved for the past 35 years. It is now available digitally on Blu-ray DVD. It is a stunner. It is a shocker. Um, it is provocative. It is very graphic. And it delves into... All, all the killings, uh, covering everything from Kennedy to the shooting of Reagan to the shooting of George Wallace, uh, Ted Bundy, um, you know, Ed Dora, uh, Sirhan Sirhan, um, Ed Camper. Uh, this is, it takes us through. And then all of the sniper shootings that were happening in the Late 60s, early 70s. And remember, this film was done in 1980. Oh, 1982. I was about to say that. I've heard about this film. Uh, but it was, it was never released in the United States. Uh, there was some years ago a, blue, a DVD version that was released in Great Britain. But this is just, it's so fascinating uh, as we see history unfold and the issues that we have long faced uh, the issues of gun control, and what I'm what I find intriguing, and I I know that Sheldon will will talk about this with us, is this film was done before all of the terrorism that we now face in today's world, before all of, with the exception of some multiple sniper shootings that took uh, took place on college campuses. This was before the Beltway sniper going up and down I-95, um, and definitely before what we witnessed at Columbine, what we w- witnessed in Colorado, what we witnessed in in Newton, what we mi- witnessed in San Bernardino, and you know, definitely so 9-11. You, just, you can just list all of those yeah. things. And 
you know, it, it's, you know, and what just happened in Orlando today marks the six month anniversary of the nightclub shootings in, in Florida. So, you know, while in 2014, there were 4.5 murders for every 100,000 people, as opposed to 1980, where there were more than 10 murders for every 100,000 people. That doesn't include the mass terrorist attacks. Those figures for t- that are available now don't include San Bernardino. They don't include the church down in the Carolinas. Oh, yeah. It doesn't include 9-11. Aurora. It doesn't include Aurora. So this is, you know, and it's, it's going to be interesting uh, because the footage that Sheldon has amassed, I mean, you actually see, and the, this is footage that was taken, you know, by the news that I think in some form was out there, but with everything remastered and digitally enhanced, you can now actually see you can see the spray of the body when the bullet hits it come out. There are pieces of heads. It, we even see officers being gunned down. It is, it's frightening. It's shocking. And unfortunately, that is still very much a part of our society today, 35 years later. So the re-release could not be more timely, especially with all the talk about uh, the Second Amendment, gun control. So... Very anxious to talk to Sheldon about not just the making of the killing of America, but also, you know, he is one of the experts on American underground film. So this is going to be really very exciting, I think. But before that, we have some very important business to take care of today of all days. Oh, yeah. Today is the last day. For one, at least. For one. You will be modifying this this event, this portion of the show next week. No, because we can add when it comes out on Blu-ray. Well, no, we're going to be modifying to add in other films that will be coming. Oh, yes, yes. There, there will be more additional films, but for the most part, yes. The so, for this without one. any further ado, let Brian do his final Star Wars countdown for Rogue One. We have a mission for you. Ready? May the force be with us. Oh, there it is. Oh, they finally gave it a rating. I was waiting for that to have... What'd they give it? PG-13. All right. So all the kids are going to be there, basically. Uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Finally. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Three days, oh. 12 hours, and 51 <laughs> minutes to go. If you're watching at midnight, it should be about two days then, uh, if you're going to watch it. Uh, but I can't watch it, but I have work on, on Friday mornings. But... I remember I'm going to say goodbye to this countdown because it's the final time we'll be able to do it for Rogue One. But I remember when we were at 150 days. Mm-hmm. I remember when we were at 90, mm-hmm. 80, when we were doing the yeah. increments of 10s and 20s. But now, look, we're three days away. Uh, all the merchandising has finally popped up. If you, though, we finally, I, I saw a General Mills one. If you purchase three General Mills items with Star Wars One or yeah. Star Wars Rogue One uh, banners on the outside, mm-hmm. you get a free movie ticket. Oh, okay. So if you're already buying cereal, that's fine. You might as well just redeem your. Mo- I, I don't buy ticket. cereal. And neither do I. But oh, I'm just saying, fine. if you buy General Mills products that have the Rogue One symbol on them, you'll get a free movie ticket from General Mills. We saw the Nissan car. Uh, Gillette finally released yep. their products. Uh, toys are all over the place. Yes, t-shirts. T-shirts, t-shirts which you're adorn- which, you're wearing one right now. Is Darth Vader on it? On this one? No, it's just a Rebel shirt, huh? It's just Rebels, yeah. I have a, the Darth Vader one is in the laundry at home. Okay, yeah, and uh, the best part about Rogue One is the Darth Vader the Darth Vader merchandise is start, starting to pop up. Again. Yeah, there's so much Darth Vader merchandise out there. There always was, but now there's more of it. You can't have enough Darth Vader as no, far you, as I'm concerned. You cannot. There's a life size. There's like child sized toys. That are coming up of, of Darth Vader. There's masks everywhere. Oh, God. There's a little pencil, which I already bought for my final my finals week. Uh, pen, number two pencils with Darth Vader on them for good luck. I've given you Star Wars pencils before with Darth Vader on them. Yes, you have, and I used them. 
Well, I, I, I've, I've used them all the way down to the uh, to, to the, the nubs. Yep. Okay. I, I still have a lot of the stuff that you've given me, but yes, Rogue One this Friday. Uh, if you have not purchased your t- your tickets, if you slept on purchasing your tickets, good luck watching this film because it is going to be sold out for the next two weeks. Yeah. And have you seen it? No. Nope. Okay. I I was not invited to the premiere the other night, unlike some of my colleagues. You know, Disney seemed to overlook the fact that, you know, we've given Rogue One coverage for the past seven months every week. Yeah. Well, we should have probably sent them into them. Disney. I've sent them. They get links to the show. Disney, we love you. We still love you if you do invite us. Yes. I I do love that the X-Wing is still sitting outside. On Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I was telling somebody, a a friend of mine who wanted to drive down there to go take a photo with them. I'm like, we're not going to get anywhere near that thing. I don't know if anybody did, but... Um, fortunately for you, if you want to take a photo with an X-Wing, I'm pretty sure Disneyland's going to have one as soon as they open up Star Wars Land. Oh, I'd pretty much bet on it. They're not going to miss out on that merchandising and marketing ad- uh, opportunity. I don't I don't see why they wouldn't just have like a big old Millennium Falcon in the middle of the park or, or an X-Wing or even a TIE fighter for that. For that Look, matter. I only want the Falcon there if Harrison Ford is with it. But, you know, I, I, I got my standards. If you're looking at, at a concept art for the for the rides and everything, there's going to be a Millennium Falcon ride. So that's going to be part of the uh, of the Star Wars land. So, in other words, Harrison Ford is taking over the park because we have the Indiana Jones ride. Yep. Now we will have the Millennium Falcon ride. Yeah, and then there's people running through the park, fugitive style. Okay. As if they have somewhere to go. So yeah, there's a lot of Harrison Ford influence out there. Uh, but yeah, Star Wars uh, Rogue One. Thank you so much. For letting me do the countdown, but Star Wars Episode Eight, three hundred sixty-seven days. So. Well, here, and I'll give you a little tidbit because while I was moderating a Q and A at the ArcLight on Saturday night for the founder, um, the story of Ray Kroc with Michael Keaton, with director John Lee Hancock, I also had the cinematographer John Schwartzman, and guess what his what his next big project is that he is cinematographer on the Han Solo film. Star Wars 9. Star Wars 9. So they're already booking Star Wars 9. Well, they yeah, obviously they already filmed. And he confirmed to me, yes, it is not rumored. It is no, he is signed, he is on board. He is he will be the cinematographer for Star Wars 9. And then of course, the other day I had a chance to speak with Greg Frazier, the cinematographer on Lion, who just happens to be the cinematographer on Rogue One. So you know, you're going to be hearing uh, and reading more in the coming weeks on what Greg has. To, Greg had to tell me about Rogue One and about Lion, and uh, we'll be talking more in the future with John Schwartzman about what he's got uh, coming up. And I know Brian's playing with the phone now because I think we do. We have Sheldon Renan on the line already. I I love people that are prompt. Sheldon, are you there? Yes, I am. Good morning. Good morning, Sheldon. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, my gosh, Sheldon. This is such an honor to have you here and such a privilege. Um, The Killing of America is outstanding. It is outstanding. I mean, from a cinematic standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, from a look at our history and unfortunately, it's as relevant today as it was when you made this 35 years ago. I'm afraid you're right, about at least about the last. Yes. It certainly is. I mean, what, what was it that inspired you to make this movie? I, I know when it was made at that time, you know, homicides were at an all-time high, um, and they had morphed from being single-gun shootings into mutilations and serial killings. And at one point, I think in 1980, the murder rate was more than 10 murders for every 100,000 people in the United States. I mean, the numbers were just astronomical. Well, it felt like everything was was certainly felt at the time like everything was out of control. And... Um the, the the idea for the film didn't originate with me, it, and it originated with the writer and producer, mm-hmm. uh, Len Schrader, and um, and his relationship with a Japanese producer by the name of Mataichiro Yamamoto, or as everybody called him, Mata. And um, the film 
uh, you know, were a series of films that had been very successful in the Japanese market um, that were exploitation films, essentially. Mm-hmm. But Len, uh, instead of, um, and Mata, instead of reaching, a, instead of trying to, to do another exploitation film, recruited a lot of young filmmakers, a, a lot of people, uh, starting with me, um, who were really ambitious and, and loved film and wanted to make it a good film. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, were really um, kind of, well, a Japanese term would be gambada, were really, really uh, very aggressive, proactive in, in trying to uh, go after the truth and go as, as deep and as far as we could go. Mm-hmm. So uh, unlike the other films, which uh, were not opposed to using baked footage um, or editing or narrating it in a way which was over the top or um, kind of romanticized violence, Mm-hmm. This film uh, was as blunt and as searching and as truthful as we could make it. And the most important part of that, I think, was Len Schrader's uh, sensibility himself and his narration. If you listen to it, is a is a beautiful narration, beautifully written, um, kind of kind of a uh, very, I guess you would say, blue collar, down and earthy. Um, narration beautifully written oh it is uh, it's one of the finest narrations that i have ever seen with and heard with a documentary and it is it's paced so well and chuck riley is the narrator his vote his he doesn't influence the viewer with a rise and fall or cadence of his voice it is very even keel well chuck riley was a real was a real find he he came from uh from Oklahoma, he was a uh, a drive time shock, what they call a shock jock. Mm-hmm. He had a voice that would cut cut through steel. <laughs> <laughs> he had never done anything like this, and so I spent a lot of time at his house in the uh, San Fernando Valley, going over the stories with him and and um, feeling our way towards it. Most of the time was Chuck teaching me um, what he could do and. Um, he, he was a he was a very ambitious and uh, very intelligent uh, narrator. One of the best I ever worked with. So, how do you approach? Because with there were so many high profile uh, shootings, killings in that time. It seems these high profile events never go away. Um, but how do you go about? deciding which ones to include and then tracking down all of the footage because you've got some footage in there that is so i mean it's besides being very graphic it is very telling and there are things we haven't seen and yeah with ronald reagan shooting it's enhanced and you actually you know in post-production you indicate where the gun is coming from so we can see just how close somebody got to him same thing with George Wallace. It's absolutely the detail and the minutia that you give us. It, it, it is mind-boggling. So how do you go about deciding on what to include and then at, uh, obtaining it so you can include it? Well, I think there, there were, were, were two approaches. The first approach is that I had done a lot of research about homicide and people who kill people for another script, and that was the reason I think that Len uh, originally approached me, mm-hmm. um, and he'd read that script, and we had talked about uh, the research, and then I did I did a, a lot of psychological research uh, with people who'd studied homicide, principally at, at UCLA, um, and, and it was clear that homicide was something... Uh, was something that most people thought about every day of their lives, but were prevented by social norms uh, from from doing anything about it. 
and also how close it was, homicide was to suicide. Mm-hmm. In Len's case, he came from a, a family where he and his brother had spent a lot of time discussing homicide when they were growing up in a, in a culture, in um, in the Calvinist culture in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them um, had gone on to careers as filmmakers, uh, Paul as a scriptwriter and First, first as a film historian, then as a script writer, and then as a director, and um, and Len as a script writer, who would later, after Killing of America, move on to directing. Um, and but everybody was uh, trying to figure out um, what went on in homicide and why was how. Was, was violence kind of structured. In my case, it was a psychological approach, mm-hmm. and in Len's case, it was an historical approach. And so he would usually uh, come up with a list of, of events. But mainly we had uh, a person who, who came on my staff. Uh, her name was Lynn Jackson, and now her name is Lynn Benjamin. Now she's a a producer in her own right, who who would begin to track down these um, these events for us, t- talking to all of the TV stations in an area um, and getting them to go into their archives and dig things out. And in many cases, it was quite difficult to convince these people to let us use their footage. But in addition, of course, we went into... Uh, the areas where there that were um, where there were there was a major story like Houston and and um, and, um, and Austin and and Dallas and I would shoot with a crew um, a transition and con- context setting and transitional material mm-hmm. in the case of Dallas for example. I was allowed to go into the Texas repository and shoot from the window that the that was identified as the window from which uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. Mm-hmm. So we would intercut uh, in a style which is common now, but was not so common back then. Uh, intercut uh, contemporary footage of the scene of these crimes and um with the historical footage and in the and in the case of the Kennedy assassination we were able to get the footage the Zapruder footage we were able to get the Zap the original Zapruder film mm-hmm. itself which um we paid a rental to the Zapruder family of $20,000 wow uh and uh one day i i got a um a package delivered by Air Freight. I opened it, and there on my desk was the original Zapruder footage. It had mold growing on it, and it had splices. And I was upset about that and called uh, our contact and and was told that um, it was the result of Life magazine. Um, uh, We had a man named Robert Gorin, who had been the main expert for the congressional investigation mm-hmm. on the Zapruder film. And he had some things he wanted to do, which had never been done before. He wanted to do special blow-ups and to stabilize the motion so that we could uh, have a much better uh, view of what had actually happened. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe that was the first time that that was ever done with that footage. And it looks, it looks amazing. Well, the Zapruder film itself, it turns out, is, uh, despite Abraham Zapruder's um, determination that it that it would not be commercialized and was anxious to turn it only over to the Secret Service, mm-hmm. that the uh, it was messed with and manipulated um, a number of times, and it was only later. That they were able to re um, to to get.
get it back to its original shape. Wow. But because I had, we had Goran going over it frame by frame, and he knew it frame by frame, um, that we were able to ascertain that we had the real and complete footage. I mean, it is watching that, no matter how many times you see it, um, and it's chilling every time. And with the footage that you have in The Killing of America, you really, we really get to see the detail of what was happening in terms of the shots and where the shots were hitting, because you see the physical response with each of them. Well, the story of, the, of, of how it hap- that film happened to be made uh, just came out in full when Zapruder's granddaughter wrote a, just wrote a book that was published in digital format called 26 Seconds, mm-hmm. in which she describes how her grandfather had an office of his uh, dress manufacturing firm right next to the Texas uh, Book Depository. And he was a home movie buff. He had left the camera behind that day. His personal secretary uh, insisted that he go home and get it. He was a very uh, short man, He, but he found a four-foot wall that he could stand on that would give him a, un, uh, a really clear view of mm-hmm. the parade route that Kennedy was going through. And he was shooting... Uh, looking right down at the car and Kennedy um, as the first shot landed and all the way through the entire sequence until the car, Jackie uh, uh, scrambles back to try and pick up parts of her husband's um, head mm-hmm. and it's, and it, and it pulls away. Yeah. And what's um, it's, it's actually quite timely with, you know, the killing of America coming out and all of these sequencing on Kennedy's shooting with the film, the semi-biopic uh, Jackie on Jackie Kennedy, because filmmaker Pablo Lorraine also incorporates some of that. And the dialogue is written uh, with Jackie actually saying, describing to a Life magazine reporter, you know, I was picking up pieces of my husband's skull and trying to hold his head together. Yeah, she was, I mean, there is a story uh, in the scurrilous press, not validated yet, that that there may have been a Cuban um, hitman sent and that a special high-velocity um, bullet was used especially for that third shot. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly is the first shot evidently missed him. The second shot, you can see you go through his, him uh, making a small motion at his throat. But then the, the, the third shot, the head just explodes. Mm-hmm. It's very disturbing, I have to say. And and it was that that shot along with the uh, the footage that we shot at the L.A. coroner's office plus uh, the stories as we got into the psychology of the killers and as they be- we began to talk with killers, that really uh, is the parts which are very hard to forget. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and some of the interview footage that you have incorporated into The Killing of America, Sirhan Sirhan, who thinks that he's perfectly sane and there's nothing wrong with him, um, Ed Kemper, chilling, positively chilling, listening to Ed Kemper, and you're hearing them speak with the benefit of this historical footage that you have put together and this great narration um, written by Len that gives us, you know, gives everyone the historical context. Because not too many people may know who Ed Kemper was. Uh, Everybody should know who Sirhan Sirhan was. You know, you also have, you've included, you know, Hinckley, uh, you know, you've got Ted Bundy in there, Charles Manson, you know, which I think you even add a little bit of humor when Ed Kemper is talking and he talks about Manson. Do you ever talk to Manson? He goes, no, he only talks to lizards. I, 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 
what he actually what he actually said was when I asked him that he said he said no Charlie talks only talks to the lizards. <laughs> it's like, how do you wrap your head around it? Because you talk to Ed Kemper yourself. Yeah, he was looking into my eyes when he was talking. That's that was a. Uh, <laughs> It was really uh, weird, is all I can tell you. It, the first thing is it was a long negotiation with, Kemp, with uh, Ed, uh, most of which was done over the phone, of course, by Lynn Jackson, mm-hmm. who, who told me recently that she still <laughs> freaked out by the conversations because uh, our price for getting to, um, for him agreeing to inter- be interviewed by us was... Uh, a small tabletop hi-fi so he could listen to the songs of Linda Ronstadt, whose picture he had, uh, a huge picture of him, was just out of camera range right beside his bed. Oh, my God. Uh, And um, he was very specific in in what he wanted us to bring him this this radio which, of course, had to be thoroughly inspected by the guards when we showed up that, that foggy morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you finally saw him, he was, he was both friendly and scary. He was six foot eight, and he weighed about 280 pounds. Mm-hmm. And um, your sense of him w- was um, that he would do whatever he wanted to do. And... Um, so the the most dramatic thing that happened with him was not captured on camera, and that was that um, halfway through the interview, we had to stop to change film and uh, and change sound. Um, I stepped out of the cell to talk to the cameraman and get a breath of fresh air, and Len Schrader, who had been standing behind me, uh, went into the cell to talk to Ed, and Ed was a fan of Taxi Driver. Oh, no. That, that Paul's brother had uh, directed, had uh, wrote, written, uh, didn't direct it. Of course, he directed it. But the script by Paul is, is just in a, in a, one of the best scripts in American cinema. And so... He was alone with Ed, and Ed suddenly said to him, I've killed you. And at that moment, he definitely, he told me later, he thought he was had, was, was dead. It was, that it was over. And then Kemper said, I've killed everybody I've ever met in my mind. And uh, he was a sick guy. Yeah, I, and, and that comes across in your interview. Did- well, he was... He wanted to talk about it, and he, to be honest, I think that that interview is the most amazing part of the entire film. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't the riskiest part of the film. The riskiest part of the film was, when, was the helicopter shooting we did air-to-air with the LAPD, mm-hmm. um, in which their helicopter flew into our camera helicopter, and we barely uh, got out of their way. Um, but fortunately, we had a, a, a pilot named Harry House, who was one of the best uh, movie pilots in the business. He'd flown the stunts for Blue Thunder mm-hmm. and um, and for um, the series with um, Sylvester Stallone as a in uh, Vietnam. Rambo, uh, he yeah. Was just a, he was just a great cameraman who had a scar across his neck from a time his helicopter engine had failed and dropped him into a power line which nearly beheaded him, but it broke just just before. It broke the surface of his skin, and then it broke, and then he was able to auto-rotate down to a lake below. Anyway, he was a very, a very aggressive pilot. When the when that police helicopter started turned into us, turned to the to the uh, left and instead of to the right as he had asked them to do, he had to suddenly make our helicopter climb out of the way, and told the cameraman, Peter Spokler, to pull in his legs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and the police helicopter passed right under us. I mean, we were climbing. 
Wow. Wow. We yeah. had another green helicopter pilot at the, at the Grand Canyon. You don't see that footage at, uh, in the American version. You only see it in the Japanese version. Uh, Ray, I forget it. I forget his last name, of Silver State Helicopters. And he was uh, the pilot who had pulled uh, people off the roof of the burning uh, MGM uh, casino. In Vegas, it, yeah. In Vegas. He was he was uh, very skillful and a uh, scary pilot. Um, he sure could. He, he would drop us down into a into a riverbed, and we would fly at full speed in the riverbed, following the the, the turns and this way and that way, and then climb up to get a great shot of the natural bridge, which, which is in the Japanese version, but not the American version. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you've got this grouped and structured? Your narrative through line is so well thought out here, Sheldon. You know, you have your political, you've got JFK, you've got RFK, you've got Martin Luther King, uh, you know, you've got George Wallace, you have, you know, all of that peppered in that the whole world knows. And then you, you pick up on some of these other shooters, the very smart, high IQ, nice, quiet, waspy boys, and even a couple girls that yeah. just, that just, the 16 year old girl that, well, it was yeah. Monday and she was bored. Yeah, she missed her calling. She should have been, in, she should have held on and joined, uh, um, joined one of the elite. Uh, American fighting units or something. I'll tell you. <laughs> because she had nerves of steel. But these revelations come out about these people. And, you know, you look at the world now when everybody, they're trying to do the the, stereo, the typecasting of, you know, every Muslim, everyone that looks, everyone looks Middle Eastern, they're all bad. You know, the Donald Trump mentality, don't let them in. Um, but then you look at these all-American wholesome kids and right. they're just one is admitting that he does it all because he wanted attention. I, I, <laughs> well, is it, what the people say isn't necessarily what motivates them. We'll right. never know what what motivated Charles Whitman, for example. And that's the first story. And we actually uh, went to de- went to um, Austin, went up in the tower with a, a detective. Who uh, narrated the story for us? Mm-hmm. And um, I know that recently a, a film has come out just about the, the Whitman shooting, called The Tower, and most of it is discussing um, the uh, through animation and charts what went on. But what's important are not the animation and the charts. What's important are the emotions around it and behind it. Mm-hmm. So, so my approach was, and Len, Len and I were not always aligned on this, but Len it always had to go Len's way because he was a producer and a writer. Yeah, it kind of works um, that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, the director, directors like to take the bows, but uh, it starts with the writer and it ends with the producer, usually, and Lennon was both in that case. Um, and so the film is, is if, if the film is anybody's, the film is his. Mm-hmm. But of course, everybody was was working very, very hard on it. We had a number of great cinematographers uh, who were chosen for their special, when we went in for certain kinds of filming because of their background, because of, they had done something like that. Um, in the, the case of the helicopter footage, original helicopter footage at the Grand Canyon, uh, we used Bob Charlton because he had done a famous shot among filmmakers of an eagle in flight. He'd flown with an eagle been making a film for the Bonneville Power Administration called mm-hmm. Intertie, and it was just a shot, which uh, was so astounding. So we were looking for that shot at, to open the film with, uh, be, to talk about kind of the the primal wilderness out of which America arose. We weren't able to find a, a, an eagle or a hawk, but we did uh, find wild mustangs running on the floor of Marble Canyon, which is the northernmost canyon of the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. And we literally, with Ray Paws, the pilot, able to herd them around at, so, to a place where we could fly alongside them as they galloped. It was, it's, um, I talked to Bob recently. He said it's the best shot he ever took in his entire life. 
Um, and uh, you can see it in the previews of coming attractions, and again, you can see it in the Japanese version, mm-hmm. which is included, by the way, uh, with the American version. You can see both versions. That's the great. The, that's the great part for anybody who picks up the Blu-ray and and the DVD. You get both versions. Right. And uh, and those have not been seen uh, in America since the original cut, which combined both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but. When they looked at the American version, uh, they decided that they wanted something that would fit what the Japanese wanted more. And that was done, pr- that cut was primarily shaped by Len, mm-hmm. uh, working with the editor. The editor, Lee Percy, is the, I would, uh, I said in the uh, director's track, was the uh, MVP of this production. He's the guy who sat with the footage day in and day out sometimes 16 hours a day uh, for long periods trying to meet the, the deadline and um, put my view and Len's view together to, to make it work. And Lee was a person who had started as an actor. He was Robin Williams' roommate in uh, drama school. Um, he then became a c- cinematographer of low-budget features, and this was the first feature film that he had edited. But he is a a great editor. The editing uh, is is outstanding on this. And, and he really has a film is. just out, uh, Snowden, which he was he brought in to um, re-edit and finish. Yes, I, I know that Lee did Snowden. I actually, I'm one of the few this year that, ac- that absolutely loves that movie. Well, the editing was ast- astonishing in that film. <sighs> it's like cream. It's just so subtle. It is so subtle and and moving things back and forth. And I can see, you know, knowing Lee has done both of these projects, I can see his progression as an editor. Right. You know, from early in his career to now, you know, 35 years later. He's just a very, uh, it's a combination of strength, Mm -hmm. intelligence, and sensitivity. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that you 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 don't always get. Um, I, I had this experience when I had produced a TV series uh, to introduce a Japanese film to American television back in 1975, and I had th- three different editors working on it. And when you as you sat with each editor, the world looked completely different. Yeah. And, and there was one editor, who, David Shickley, who was the brother of Peter Shickley, the com- the composer. And who was enormously intelligent. And when you sat with David, you could always see at least three different ways to cut a scene. Whereas with you, when you sat with the other editors looking through their eyes, you saw only one way. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lee is a person, the best editor I've ever worked with, no question. No, his, his work is amazing. And the way this is so well-crafted from a visual and storytelling standpoint, because there is a story that unfolds and it's very cohesive and it's very comprehensive and there's a great flow. We are never at a loss. There are moments of silence as we're just watching something, but you're so mesmerized by what you're seeing unfold. Well, I think it's just like um, a series of courses of a great meal. You need uh, something to clear the palate between um, the intense experiences. Mm-hmm. And for that, uh, we typically used um, documentary contextual footage from that was contemporaneous of the time, mm-hmm. at least at the beginning. And those were usually done uh, with a, a combination of stock footage and still footage montages. And those were done primarily by David Weissman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the art director of the film, um, and there are some some of those montages are among the most successful things in the film. The montage that tells the story of uh, Ted Bundy, for example, is uh, is an astounding piece of of uh, filmmaking. Oh, and the, and the artwork in there where we're getting you know the 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 blood red of the eye, you know, banner with the eyes, just yes. It, it just it chills you to the bone to see that, and it's almost as if he is looking right through the celluloid in, in, into your soul. Well, I think that David bonded quite intensely with um, 
with Lynn. And um, has continued, I think, to maintain his website mm-hmm. uh, after after uh, Lynn's death. Um, and he, um, to some extent, has been the kind of the keeper of the flame of Lynn. Mm-hmm. I ended up quarreling with Lynn at the end, uh, but Lynn was a was um, quite an unusual person. He and his uh, wife. Uh, lived in the Hollywood Hills with um, dogs that were half half wolf, and so Lynn always would want me to when they had a new uh, pup. Lynn would want me to come to the house early because he said told me that um, if the if it met you before it was three months old, then it considered part of the part of the family as opposed to an enemy. Mm-hmm. And, and after if you came after then while well, um, you were at danger with them, and that's and that's the way he liked to live. Wow. Uh, he also he also quarreled towards the end with his uh, with his brother Paul, and they were never able to to make up. Mm-hmm. But he did remain close to um, to David. You know, Sheldon, I'm curious. Let me ask you. This was done 35 years ago. As times have changed, and we've gone. You know, not only to police shooting, you know, to the issues now with Black Lives Matter, to police shootings and retaliation, to all of these heinous, you know, mass killings and and terrorist attacks such as San Bernardino, Newton, Aurora, Columbine, Orlando. How would you approach making a film like this today? Or could you? Uh, I think you have to. You would have to take a a, um, a more epic view of it. We tried to do that, you know. We tried to be- begin at, with the Grand Canyon and uh, to evoke this kind of center of of, um, of this majestic um, wilderness, the pioneer, out of which uh, came a lot of violence. Uh, and as we moved in from the wilderness to the city, uh, as you came over the crest of the Hollywood Hills and L.A. is revealed, suddenly you begin to hear police calls. Mm-hmm. We, we had a sound man, Courtney Gooden, who was a kind of an audio voyeur. And when I would be at his house, I noticed that he always had uh, several police scanners on at all times. Um he was like a character out of Coppola's The Conversation. <laughs> and um, so I asked him to record uh, 24 hours of police scanners. And that's what provided the soundtrack for that entrance into the city, into the violence. And then we matched um, our footage plus, plus the stock footage of various incidents, which illustrated what we were hearing on the police scanner. Mm-hmm. And that that brought it immediately, uh, brought us into it, dumped us into it. And uh, it was like descending into the depths of hell. Yeah, uh, very much so. And it was at that time, it was, I remember the first day shooting that we had uh, in L.A. was, was at the morgue. It was on Halloween. Um, we asked Lee to come down so that he could witness it. Um I had spent a long time uh, going through the picture files and the case, the case folders. I was given complete access, um, a scary amount of access. And uh, then after that, we went up to uh, Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, Len and, the, and Mata, the producer, said there was a great Halloween parade going on and we should get up there. Everybody was very tired. Um, after the, the shooting at the morgue, but the morgue was just jammed full of bodies. You 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 saw what we oh. saw. There were bodies everywhere. Uh, they, they, they didn't have enough room in the freezer rooms for all the bodies. They were in the hallway. Yeah, I mean, just stacked up. I, it was yeah. it just. I mean, I've been in the morgue before. I I've never seen it like that. So for even for me, having been there. To see that imagery, that's right. frightening. 
And then in the autopsy room, they had six different autopsies going on at the same time in a row, one after the other, all the way down a long room. Um, every table was full. I mean, just, it's horrific. It is, it is absolutely horrific. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. I, I, to be honest, Lee, Lee said that he still told me recently that he still has flashbacks of all this, all these images. And of course, it's this, this was done a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, is there anything that, you have taken from the experience of making the killing of America that gives you any kind of explanation of the insanity that we see today? Well, it was Lynn's point of view that it was the Kennedy assassination, which kind of um, tipped everybody over mm-hmm. uh, in the same way that two th- that 9-11 tipped the American um, culture over and turned it into a, t- a, a culture uh, where surveillance is king. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a, a lot of things devolved from that. But it was clear before then that there it was in the American history, and especially in the West, a huge amount of inappropriate violence. Mm-hmm. Um, pointed at anybody who was the wrong color or the wrong culture. Um, it was a rule among Chinese laborers. You never showed up for your last paycheck because if you did, you were met with um, gunfire. So you weren't getting uh, your last paycheck no matter what. You weren't going to get your last <laughs> paycheck no matter what. And, uh, and most people are not aware of it, but Chinese were not allowed to live above ground during daylight hours in uh, any western city, including Portland, where I live now. Mm-hmm. All, most uh, Chinese Chinatowns in America have um, an underground where people lived, and they were not allowed to have families, uh, not to have women there except except prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what was done with, the, with um, Native Americans is uh, unconscionable. Uh, they were given um, blankets that, that people knew uh, carried uh, smallpox yep. and things like that. So it, we we had an under an under uh, world of violence running through American history and American behavior, but it didn't really break loose into across a general population. Yeah, it became mainstream. Uh, after, until the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. And now it's it's every day we turn on the news. That's right. Part of that is the communications is so much better because there have always been uh, serial killers, but they were hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even now, when I was filming uh, in Houston, um we were at one site, and I just had the feeling that they never got all the bodies out of the ground. This was just a feeling that I oh, had. God. Houston was a, a, was a was strangely it, the city that would have the most uh, highest percentage of killing uh, would kind of go back and forth between Houston and Detroit. Mm-hmm. But across the river from Detroit in Canada, uh, the uh, homicide rate was one tenth of what it was in Detroit. And the difference were the gun laws. What were the, what were the Canadian gun laws at that time? Well, I think it wasn't as easy to get guns, and mm-hmm. you needed more of a more of a um, of a background check. Mm-hmm. Things were things were more, more measured and under more more calmer and under more control. Mm-hmm. America was kind of superheated. Even today, we have a situation where there's a huge amount of guns. Although the number of homicides have not gone up, they've gone down actually. The percentage of people, the percent, the number of guns have gone way up. Right. But the guns always go up in sales to the same people. So uh, the the percentage, the the number of guns that a person who has a gun has in a household 
now is much higher than it used to. And that means that they are harder to, con- to control access to and end up. Uh, one of the things which is very clear statistically is if you have a gun in your home, you have you are less safe and more likely to have a homicide in the home than if you didn't have a gun in there. Wow. I mean, and that's and with today's discussions and debates on the Second Amendment and you know stronger background checks. I mean, I think we need stronger background checks. Uh, we definitely need stronger background checks in Canada. You know, in, in uh, sorry, in Australia, they had this horrendous uh, uh, school shooting, and uh, the the Prime Minister of Canada, although it was politically unpopular push through a um, uh, laws in requiring background checks and making it harder for people to have access to firearms. And since then, there have been no shootings, no large mass shootings of the kind that we've seen so many of in the United States just in the past uh, two years. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, um, that's separate and apart from the other acts of terrorism with bombing and whatnot. So... Right. Frightening. Absolutely frightening. frightening. You know, and, you know, Sheldon, I wanted to ask you quickly before we, we have to wrap, you also have your very cool book, An Introduction to the American Underground Film Out There. <laughs> well, that, of course, was done uh, 15 years before. Yeah. I mean, this this really set the stage opening up the world because... And I can tell you, I actually, I, I had your book when I was in film school at Temple University. No kidding. In the 70s. What? I actually read your book. It was part of a film theory class uh, taught by T- Professor Tim Lyons. No kidding. Well, it was, that book was, was written uh, as simply and as clearly as I could, primarily because I was learning myself about the films. I was mm-hmm. only, I think, in my early 20s when I did the research and, and finished the book. And um, it turned out to be to sell 100,000 copies in the U.S. And, and to be translated into 21 languages. And it became so, part of my curriculum. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I mean, when when Ed asked you know asked me asked me about having you on the show, and I'm like about you know to talk about the killing of America, I was more excited because I knew who you were from your book. That's funny. Recently, I was interviewed for a film about Canon films called Electric Boogaloo because I had written this kind of cheesy musical mm-hmm. called Lombada, which is one of their final films, and. They were, flew me down to Hollywood to be interviewed. But when I got there, the real reason they flew me down was not because I had written Lombada, but because I had directed Killing of America, which in Australia is this incredible sleeper. Every college student, practically there's a copy, bootleg or otherwise, in, in practically every dorm. Wow. In, in Australia. And that was really why they, they wanted to know more about that with the camp. They turned the camera off to, and questioned me about that and... You're just you're just a popular guy, Sheldon. <laughs> you know. Well, it's always about the weird stuff, you know. Yeah. Well, somebody's got to do it. It might as well be you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like the edge. Well, true. unfortunately, I'm getting the signal that we're actually out of time today, Sheldon. This has been an absolute, uh, an absolute privilege and delight to have you on behind the lens today. This fascinating, fascinating. And I can't encourage everybody strongly enough. They can, you know, the film is available on demand, get Blu-ray and DVD. And the Blu-ray and DVD, I think, is the best thing because you get the Japanese and the American versions and all those great extras. And an interview with Lee Percy, the editor, by the way. So, Sheldon, thank you again. I hope you'll come back on the show sometime. Anytime. It was a great pleasure to be. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was filmmaker Sheldon Renan, The Killing of America. You can find it everywhere now, Blu-ray, DVD, and on demand. We're out of time for today. So 
We didn't get to talk about, you know, Golden Globe nominations or Critics' Choice Awards. Maybe we'll talk about some of that next week. You'll have some new interviews up on my website this week. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm -hmm. 